typically we have tenants that are, you know, a manufacturing company. They make B2B products, everything from, you know, government aerospace parts to, you know, contract uh, hair and skin product manufacturers. You know, they make big voluminous vats of, you know, say shampoos that they sell to a retail oriented company that puts their own label and, and does all the marketing and sales. Uh, we had, had another tenant recently that did industrial dryers and mixers, and they literally made these giant blades. Imagine a KitchenAid sitting on your kitchen counter, but 12 feet tall, you know, and they're <laughs> making these giant blades and dryers, you know, for these, these type of things. And, you know, everyone from 3M uses it for, you know, glues and, you know, slimes. All right, guys, welcome again to another amazing episode. Today we have Neil and Drew Walgren. Uh, for the Swedish people, I had to say with that accent. <laughs> uh, so Neil is the COO of Mad Capital Partners, and Drew is the Capital Markets uh, Director. And they are brothers just like us, and they are crushing it in in their lane and in their world. And we just love to hear it because... Uh, you know, we, we hope to, you know, continue in our path and be in their shoes at some point. So let's dive right in. Neil and, and Drew, I don't know who wants to go first, but, you know, give us a little background about, about both of you. I know I know Neil's prior uh, military and, and Drew don't know that much about your, your background before all this. But, yeah, dive into it, how you got started and how you ended up in, in real estate and, and, you know, in this uh, MAG group. Yeah, um, I'll I'll kick it off here. So, first off, thanks for having us on, guys. Uh, yeah. So Neil Wagren here. Uh, you know, I, I've been doing commercial real estate for about six years, and I, I got really got into it through somewhat of a, a unique pathway. I had a, a personal family friend who had started a equity business, and I was just moving back to the Bay Area for some uh, some family reasons. And um, just got to talking and he had, you know, really uh, was telling me a little bit about his business and what he did in his company. Um, this this friend was had built really an, an equity investor focused business where he had a, a network of investors that he would raise money from. And then what he would do is he would partner on a deal by deal basis with sponsors, commercial real estate brokers, really guys that guys and girls who had, you know, talent and putting together a solid commercial real estate investment project, but lacked access to investor capital. So they would kind of partner on a JV basis, deal to deal. And it was really neat. Um, so, you know, I came in there, kind of learned the ropes and, and worked my way up. And what was unique about it was really, we got to work with a number of different sponsors. We had about six or eight different folks, all with very unique specialties. So for example, we had, you know, one sponsor who is our, our multifamily sponsor and they strictly did multifamily value add in the Southeast. We had another one who was our multi-tenant retail guy and he was in the, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, specialized in that particular sub-asset class. And we got to see, you know, how he structured deals, how he weighed risk and investor returns. And then, you know, we had another one who did office, another one who did you know, multi-tenant industrial. And uh, one of the, the last sponsors was uh, a group, Mag Capital, that we had partnered with. And Mag Capital um, specialized strictly in single-tenant net leased industrial. Um, so again, all these, each with their own, you know, specific nuances. And it was really neat just to kind of grow and understand the space in a way that you really can only do if you deep dive into the underwriting, deep dive with different experts in the field and just come in with an open mind. And so it really, I, I did that. I was running operations and overseeing overall, you know, investor growth and, and capital raising uh, for that previous firm. And then after uh, two or three years, had an opportunity to fully partner up with the folks over at Mag Capital. Um, so that company, Principals Dax, Mitchell and Andrew G. And really we, we just got along with them on a personal level and really liked the, just the, the model and its simplicity. Uh, really just not a lot of moving parts. Or, or let me rephrase that. Most of the, the value add and moving parts all happen kind of prior to a deal actually being ready to raise equity from investors. Um, so a lot of that comes, in, and we'll talk about it in a little bit here, but you know, just the net lease part, 
you're not only are you negotiating the price of the real estate, but you're also negotiating the terms of the lease. So really uh, a lot more nuanced than just buying an existing property with you know existing leases and tenants in place. But I've been COO and with that team for about two years now, uh, full-time overseeing kind of internal operations, raising capital for the, for the projects and have had the unique opportunity to be able to do this with my brother, Drew. Um, so I'll, I'll kick it over to you, Drew, and you can tell us a little about kind of your, your individual journey. Sure. Yeah. Um, years ago, you know, Neil was, like he said, he was working with this company that was uh, partnering with other sponsors. And, you know, of course, being brothers, we're tight. We hang out um, quite a bit and we'll have, you know, a beer and talk about what he's doing in his work. And so I got kind of an early understanding. And at some point I, I sold a house and said, well, you know, and I had weighed out renting out the single family home and, um, you know, and I had a, a few kind of heart to hearts with Neil talking about, Hey, what should I do here? And really that's that fork in the road that a lot of people come into, which is, do I want to be an active real estate investor or passive? And I, you know, just looking at everything and having all those conversations with Neil, um, it was, you know, usually he draws me into a lot of bad ideas, but, uh, <laughs> but this, no, more, more risky, uh, but fun ideas. No, but this was a uh, very good advice. And so I sold the house and, and, you know, started, using the proceeds and actually invested with the sponsor group he was with as well as kind of got plugged into other sponsors out there. And that kind of started my learning journey. And at a, some, a certain point I was ready to leave, um, you know, the very corporate gig I had at an ins a large insurance company um, doing, you know, a vendor program and managing risk. And I said, Hey, this is a, uh, you know, I'd love to make this jump. I'm so tired of doing this um, where I'm at and I want to come into this full time. So Neil and I both uh, jumped ship and, and really merged uh, our small group of investors and, and um, our efforts over to mag capital partners. So that, like I said, back in 2019, that happened and it's been um, it's been a great journey i really kind of leveraged the network i had and really began to grow that and then i've kind of you know we've both sort of evolved into helping on the acquisition side too so it's been a it's been a great great journey that's awesome you're muted jeremy you're still muted he's oh he's saying what is he's going on man <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what happened there uh, let me step back just a little bit because uh, I'm curious. Uh, now that I'm near my retirement and I talk to people that are looking into the next path, right? Neil basically started this whole venture with you guys uh, and your prior military. And you say you moved to San Francisco for family reasons. How or what type of background do you have in the military or, or what type of background do you have to to land this gig where you started working with this company and, and that basically exploded what you guys are doing right now? Yeah, great question. So my background, very different from real estate. Um, mm -hmm. uh, right after high school, I actually went to university at the U.S. Air Force Academy out in Colorado Springs. So it's the basically Air Force equivalent of West Point for the Army, Naval Academy for the Navy. And uh, so spent four years there, got my undergrad, um, majored in operations research, and was fortunate enough to land a, a pilot training slot afterwards. So we went on a couple of years of flight school, you know, a bunch of different bases out in the Midwest, and then ended up uh, getting fully certified on the C-130, the Hercules. So arguably nice. the best plane in the inventory. I think most, most Marines can, uh, can respect the, oh, uh, you know, I, I loved it. The workhorse <laughs> of it. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> I love yeah. it. Anyone in the army and the Marines, especially they're like, yeah, I've spent probably too many hours on a C-130, but, yeah. um, but yeah, it was a great experience. And, you know, I got to uh, live in Asia out in Tokyo for a couple of years, uh, deployments to, Iraq and Afghanistan, supporting OIF and OEF there. And really, you know, during that progression, and the Air Force is fortunate because they really value, especially on the officer track, they value a master's degrees. So during that, that period, I was able to actually get an MBA from Texas A&M. So that was really kind of my first foray into the, the business side of things. And, you know, still deciding whether I wanted to go, you know, be a lifer or possibly pivot and had an opportunity actually to uh, get out a little bit early of my active duty commitment um, by doing a, a reserve transition, uh, which is a program because they were 
kind of downsizing some of the active duty C-130 component uh, air crew and said, hey, what better time to uh, mix it up? So actually I switched over and joined the Navy. Um, better looking uniforms, <laughs> same plane, but uh, yeah. really the main reason, you know, the Air Force, um, you know, reserve and guard bases are all, you know, kind of in the middle of nowhere and all the Navy ones are right on the coast. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I ended up being able to get picked up by a, a Navy reserve unit in Point Magoo, which is about six miles from Malibu, California. <laughs> we literally, we would take off. Nice. The end of the runway was the sand and you just take off over the Pacific Ocean. Nice. <laughs> Pretty good setup out there. So um, yeah, I was, I was living in, in uh, Ventura. I was flying part-time and actually landed a gig um, working for a renewable energy startup. And so that was interesting. Really got to, you know, kind of take that MBA, um, you know, really... I was qualified on paper, but it was my first, you know, transition over. And what, what was interesting, you know, people are always that first first jump into the civilians are always the hardest. And I came in actually as a project manager and kind of sold my experience of, hey, not only am I a pilot, but I'm I'm managing a crew of of air crew, really, you know, multi multi crew aircraft. We had co-pilots and navigators and loadmasters and flight engineers, you know, flight mechanics, all this stuff. And so you really have to, you know, know their specialties and get everyone more or less aligned to, to get them, you know, really where you need to be and, you know, accomplish the mission there. So there's a lot of similarities with uh, project management. So I worked with the team engineers. We were building this uh, demonstration plant um, with this really technology where we would convert uh, wood waste feedstock into a gaseous form of, uh, of gasoline. Um, so it was really neat. And uh, it was it was a way to substitute some of the petroleum-based hydrocarbon elements with plant-based alternatives, uh, but molecularly identical. So, fortunately, the the company didn't make it long-term because of some funding and cost viability issues. But neat experience, and really, it was you know kind of that first jump to say, hey, you know, do I want to stay in the reserves here, or do I want to you know kind of jump into the private sector? And I really like the startup world, kind of the you know, the risks, the, the nimbility it allowed. And, you know, really you could kind of just, you know, stick your neck out as far as you wanted to go. And, you know, yeah. you might get swacked, you might not, maybe, maybe you come across something great. Uh, but just, I really, I found I was, I was drawn to that level of, you know, kind of freedom, flexibility, adventure. And, and it was kind of a transition. And what was kind of wild for me was I found, psychologically, I actually got a, a lot of the same kind of endorphin rushes from pursuing, you know, business ventures as I did flying. And, you know, it's hard to explain sometimes to, yeah. to people, especially if they've stayed in the cockpit, but really it kind of triggers a lot of the same pieces of your brain when it, when you just really engaged on something like that. So, uh, you know, I still fly for fun, uh, but it was a good transition in that respect. And and really having had that startup experience was, you know, kind of what made me, you know, qualified and, and suited for doing the jump over to that initial commercial real estate venture up in the Bay Area. Nice. Cool. I, you know, I, I think you hit on the key point there because I I think when you're in an operations role in, in, in wherever you are, you can relate because it feels, feels like you're in control and you can able, you can choose the right people for the right jobs and help massage the team and, and accomplish something. And that's always super rewarding for anyone who, who's been in a leadership role. Right. So yeah, that's pretty cool. Drew. So, so how about you, man? Cause you, you know, you, what made your jump from passive investor and say, Hey, I want to leave corporate and you know, what was, why, you know, what made that happen? Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, entrepreneurship runs in our family a little bit. Um, our, I think our entire family has had their own business. And before I was in the corporate world, I, I had my own small business, uh, totally unrelated, but, you know, so distributing drinks and snacks to cafes and restaurants around the Bay Area here where I live. So um, that was, you know, something in my early, early days and I actually uh, left school to do that um, because it was a great opportunity and um, really got a lot of real world experience. But, you know, eventually 
markets tanked and a lot of my customers went out of business, went back to school and finished with a finance degree and ultimately transitioned into this corporate world. And I kind of missed having, you know, exactly what Neil's talking about, just having uh, ultimately kind of day to day risks and rewards. And it's just, um, you know, it's, it's living really. I mean, just having something that's a little bit more stable is, is, great. And it works for a lot of people, especially when you have dependents. Um, but really, I kind of missed that. And I was looking for a way to jump back into that. So um, kind of investing as a limited partner um, in a lot of these deals, it was good experience for me to get my feet in the water to really um, get a sense of how different sponsors are operating, um, you know, what the deals looked like, ask Neil a million questions, because I did in the early days, you know, I wanted to know all of these uh, little nuances. Hey, why do they do this? Which is better? And um, really kind of gave me an opportunity to feel it out. And, you know, I, you know, I had never sponsored a deal, but I had gotten quite a bit of experience there. And so just having wanting to get back into more entrepreneurial role, um, as well as kind of that experience with, um, with syndications and, and uh, sponsors that put together these deals, kind of ultimately led, led me to a path where I could say, hey, uh, look, I can leverage the network I have and expand on this and bring equity to these deals because I ultimately am its number one fan, right? I had invested with this company before I joined Mac Capital Partners. So I really, you know, you have to be a believer in order to kind of bring the product to people and really show them why it's great. So that's uh, kind of the story there. Oh, that's sweet, man. So then let, let's talk a little bit about, you know, net leases. So most of our our podcast guests are towards multifamily. We've had a few in the storage business, uh, and then in the fund creation business. So, tell us a little bit about net leases and how uh, how that actually works. Yeah, absolutely. So, I'll I'll take the kind of fundamentals here, Drew, and then I'll I'll kick it over to you for some of the the nuanced pieces, but. You know, really, there's two main components of what makes our model unique. And one I would talk about is the, the single tenant net lease piece and understanding how that kind of mitigates some risk and isolates the remaining risk in a way that's understandable for us and for our investors. Um, so really, we come in and we are setting up new leases on these deals because we acquire them through um, through sale leaseback. So before we hop into the lease part, it's important to kind of understand how, how deal flow happens for us on these. And so typically we have tenants that are, you know, a manufacturing company, they make B2B products, everything from, you know, government aerospace parts to, you know, contract uh, hair and skin product manufacturers, you know, they make big voluminous vats of, you know, say shampoos that they sell to a retail oriented company that puts their own label and, and does all the marketing and sales. Uh, we had, had another tenant recently that did industrial dryers and mixers, and they literally made these giant blades. Imagine a KitchenAid sitting on your kitchen counter, but 12 feet tall, you know, and they're <laughs> making these giant blades and dryers, you know, for these, these type of things. And, you know, everyone from 3M uses it for, you know, glues and, you know, slimes and adhesives uh, that they make to, you know, even General Mills uses it for cereal. I mean, just that those kind of products that really just drive the, the gears of the economy. And, you know, they're great tenants because they, most of them have been around a long time. You know, they've been around 30, 40, 50 years. They have really solid financials, or at least the ones that we, we go into, uh, you know, pursue as a, a real estate deal. And, you know, they have deeper cash reserves than, you know, small companies or individuals do. So you're coming in and yes, there is a concentrated tenant risk because it's single tenant, but if you understand the economic fundamentals of that tenant, it's quite a, an understandable risk. And so that, that really carries over to the second piece, which is the, the net lease. And so the net lease is just another word for triple net. And really that means that our tenants are handling 100% of the expenses, both known and unknown. So we are completely removing that expense piece from the operational risk of our investment. That means they're handling taxes, they're handling insurance, they're handling maintenance, they're handling utilities. And these are actually absolute net leases. So they typically include roofs, they include you know, heating and air, HVAC, pavement, landscape, 
really anything that comes up is going to be the responsibility of the tenant. So that means, I mean, really our, you know, our operational cash flow monthly bank statements are <laughs> among the most boringly simple you, you ever see. You just have rent come in, you pay the mortgage, you pay your investor, <laughs> three transactions a month. And nice. it's great, you know, so that a lot of that churn, a lot of that value add, a lot of that, you know, hey, I, I think I can, you know, improve this product to hit a certain benchmark. We do a lot of that really in the pre-negotiation in designing that lease. And we use institutional grade leases, designing the purchase, um, you know, really the cost of the building and the terms of the lease and really finding a way to kind of mold those two in an art form and a way that's a win-win for the seller who's turning around and becoming our tenant. So that's that's how we get those under contract. And that's really the the structure of the deal that we both take, you know, real estate debt on and then raise the balance through investor equity. Awesome. Yeah, just to add to that, um, you know, what that does for an investment is it just makes it more predictable as far as cash flow goes. So um, I mean, I often compare what we do to multifamily just because it's a really popular uh, asset class. But, um, you know, I've talked to lots of investors and, and even sponsors where they've told me, hey, you know, these expenses, uh, sometimes they come out of nowhere, you know. So there's a lot that you can um, you can underwrite for. You know, I know what my landscaping cost is going to be to make sure my, you know, hedges look beautiful. But <laughs> Sometimes an elevator is supposed to last 30 years and it lasts 15, you know, and it might be a $70,000 repair replacement, right? So things like that can happen and really erode cash flow if you're not in a net lease. So having that is really beneficial for us where, where uh, it makes it easier for us to really um, look and point to the underwriting as much more, um, you know, there's a lot less risks um, that could erode that cash flow, so it makes it very nice there. And uh, you know, we still work with these tenants as they, um, you know, want to do repairs or or improvements. And we have facilities managers who kind of coordinate that with them to make sure it's done to our liking. But ultimately, the cost falls on to the tenant. So, and and these tenants are all very committed to the locations. They've been there for a long time, like Neil said, and they plan to be there for a long time because we are executing a brand new 15 to 20 year generally lease. So they have a lot of commitment there. So it's never a sort of a battle with a tenant. They're, they're planning on being there. They're very invested into the property and the building. And usually they've already got plans for, you know, six months, 12 months down the road, they want to replace part of the roof. They want to pave the parking lot because they take pride in the facility because they've been there for so long. That's so Sorry, Jeremy, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask. So, um, I don't know. I mean, and, and this is probably one of those basic questions, but for people that are saying, you know, okay, uh, the, the tenant takes care of all the maintenance. Do they have to come through you uh, to, for example, like you say, paint the, 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 uh, the, the parking lots? Do they need that approval? Do they need that constant communication with you guys? Or are they just, for 20 years, they're building these stairs and they just pay rent to you guys? Yeah, no, great, great question. Because we are the owner, so we don't want them just, you know, building stuff, you know, doing a little DIY yeah. project, right? So, yeah. uh, no, there's there's provisions that say they have to just basically run it through management. You know, we sign up. Typically, there's a dollar limit to say, hey, anything above this level needs, uh, you know, landlord approval. Uh, similar yeah. to what you would have, you know, just on a residential lease as well. Okay. You know, you're you're handling light bulb changes, but anything above five or, you know. $1,000, you're coordinating with the landlord to make sure that those repairs are, are done in a, in a way that they want long-term for that unit, right? So that's, that we have a lot of degree of control on that. And we can actually dictate, you know, coming in when we're buying a building, sometimes there's deferred maintenance, right? Sometimes there's a roof that probably should have been replaced four years ago. And a lot of times we'll come in and kind of give them two options and go, hey, we can either withhold some of the proceeds you're gonna get from the sale and, you know, basically hold this until you, you know, you can draw off it uh, to pay for the, the new roof, but we're going to, you know, kind of escrow this. Or sometimes we'll come in and go, hey, if you're more interested in proceeds, we can actually, we can pay for that new roof and we'll amortize the cost of that new roof in the form of a higher rent. So, you know, um, we, we like to be, you know, these it's a long-term relationship, right? You know, we're, yeah. we're in this, they've been in place a long time. We're signing a new 15, 20 year lease. Uh, so we're looking to really have a, a predictable long-term relationship in a way that we can, you know, kind of work almost as a, a private lender for them if needed to amortize some of that needed work. 
and it's a win-win, you know, we're, we're getting a better, you know, better looking facility that, you know, is, is kept up and really, you know, up to standards. And now they are, you know, finding a way that they can get those repairs done without having the impact that, you know, net proceeds coming from the sale of the real estate. Oh man, that, that's a very good strategy. I like that, that piece where you basically become a private lender. You're also, I mean, I imagine you charge interest on that. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of ways you can, you know, skin yeah. the cat there. So. Yeah, because they'd rather pay smaller amount over mm-hmm. a period of time. So I was going to ask before that is, you mentioned most of the, you know, the value added done in the agreement. So if they're paying all expenses, I mean, you're eliminating your, your expense column, but then how, how exactly are you negotiating for, well, I imagine, rent bumps? Um, or and projecting, because I imagine you're also projecting the value of the asset over that 15, 20 year. Yeah, how do you how do you calculate that? How do you make that happen? And Drew, you want to talk a little about how the rent bumps correlate to NOI and kind of guaranteed value lift there? Sure. Yeah, most of these. I mean, I've never seen a long term commercial lease that for a single tenant that doesn't have some kind of rent bumps, and you know they can be designed to a number of different ways. Usually you see maybe a one and a half to 3%, somewhere in that range, 2% is pretty common. Um, You know, we're seeing more leases just with some, you know, currently fears around inflation, um, uh, having some lease bumps or rent bumps that that center or are tied to uh, cost of cost of living in the area um, cost or, or rise in inflation. So, um, but either way, there's always going to be some kind of increases. So, you know, if we're, if we're purchasing a property at a, you know, a pretty conservative rate, let's just say, and, and maybe it's a, a seven and a quarter percent, right? Um, seven and a quarter percent cap rates. Uh, then we feel pretty confidently that, you know, properties are currently trading between a seven and seven and a quarter. And we were kind of on the high end of that cap rate there. So we feel good about it. We come into it and conservatively, we assume that we're going to be able to sell the property. Let's just say five years later for seven and a quarter percent cap rate. So as time goes by, we're going to have two, maybe 3% rent increases over that time, uh, all the while paying down the principal of the loan we have with the bank who's financing the property as well. So we're kind of creating value in both those ways. And, you know, if we have the same cap rate that we purchased the property for, then obviously our, our net operating income has increased, right? We don't have any expenses. We've already eliminated that with the net lease and we have increases in rent. So, you know, we may have a pretty significant jump um, five years later in the net operating income, which correlates with that cap rate. And of course, you know, gives us a, a higher exit price when we go to sell. So um, yeah, there's not, it's not, this is not a value add kind of um, deal, you know, uh, it's certainly not. Um, but as far as, you know, where we come in, the value that we create is oftentimes at the acquisition. Um, usually we're able to get better than market cap rates because of that sale leaseback structure. Um, it's not something that every sponsor or buyer is willing and able to do. Um, it's a lot more nuanced, a lot more important questions to ask and, and, and answer with the right kind of structure and creativity sometimes. So uh, because of that, we've kind of built, well, I'd say we've built kind of a track record and have brought in some off-market opportunities because people now know that we've been doing this for quite a while in the sale leaseback space. So um, I'm not going to say that we get a, you know, half off, of course not, but <laughs> oftentimes we're able to get that off off market opportunity and a seller who wants to get what's ultimately a financing transaction done is looking for a reliable buyer. So oftentimes they'll work with us a little bit and we're flexible with them. Um, you know, like we you know, talked about earlier, there's a couple different levers we're negotiating with acquisition price and lease rate. And sometimes one is more important than the other. And we can kind of work with them to get to meet their goals. So because of that, we're usually able to negotiate a little bit better price. So oftentimes that's what we're looking for is that built in equity on acquisition. And then of course, uh, you know, building that value over increased rents over time. No, that's a great explanation. My that that leads into the risk factor, right? Of, Of every asset class has their own their own risk. What is it? Is it ever tied to the tenants? Because their business, their their NOI, as far as like, hey, maybe 
the contract would say something as far as like, hey, normally it would be two, three percent, but if you have a certain decrease in NOI, you won't, we won't raise it a certain amount. I'm just thinking of, of what happens in the downturn, or or I mean, I, I get it. These are very yeah, where's the risk? Very, very yeah. strong companies for industry, um, but but where's the risk at in in this? So, or, or you guys don't see any. <laughs> yeah, no, no, there's, there's always risk. You know, if, if anyone tells you there's a deal without risk, yeah, just exactly. and, <laughs> yeah I, if it looks too good to be true, <laughs> it probably is. Right. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we really, the attractiveness of these deals are, you know, there, there's a, a bump on the end that usually happens in terms of profit. But I mean, really what you know with a high degree of certainty is that stream of cash flows um, that comes from the rents, right? And we talked about the, the straightforwardness of it because you are removing that expense component so that those cash flows are guaranteed by the lease. So they are they are as strong as the lease and the lease is as strong as the tenant. So we, once you kind of understand that that relationship there, you know, everything really comes down to how, you know, really how sure am I that this tenant is going to follow through on their lease obligations and not default on that lease. So a lease default is what I want to avoid. Right. And through that, what we do is, is we come in and there's, there's kind of two ways to look at tenant credit to understand what that real true risk is from a tenant. So you have, you have what's called uh, the industry calls them credit tenants and credit tenants typically have a annual revenues of over a hundred million. You know, and these are going to be big companies, you know, your Amazons, your Walmarts, et cetera, et cetera. And credit tenants often will come in or publicly traded companies usually qualify as credit tenants because they all have outside credit agencies that give them a very formal score, right? You'll have a Moody's score, uh, a credit report, S&P comes in, they give you, you know, an AA minus, you know, credit report, whatever it might be. And now everyone can look at that and say, hey, we all agree that this is the relative riskiness of this tenant, right? We play in what's called sub-investment grade. So uh, most of the of the tenants that we have in our real estate are you know, usually about 60 to 80 million in, in annual revenues, still very profitable. You know, most of them have double-digit EBITDA margins, you know, low debt, but they don't have an outside agency coming in. So what we do is we actually have a credit advisory team on, on staff. So we got three guys. All I do full time is basically do a deep dive into the, you know, all the financials, the revenues, the EBITDAs, you know, your debt, your quick ratios, uh, I mean, really all the financial pieces. And they, they kind of spell it out in what we call a credit memo. And we actually provide that credit memo as an addendum to the investment summary to our investors. And it lets them kind of deep dive into really just a plain language narrative on, hey, this is why we think this is a safe bet. This is why we think after this company gets the proceeds, you know, for the five years we plan to hold this, this piece of real estate, we think this is gonna be a viable tenant. And it's really interesting. So we're able to kind of encapsulate that risk. And the reason we're able to get better returns than, you know, say a, a credit tenant is because we're playing and we actually focus on the arbitrage between the perceived risk of these smaller companies and the actual risk. And that, that delta between those two is where we capture value. And that value is why we're able to typically deliver you know, high teens returns from these investments. Whereas you know, if you had a piece of real estate with Amazon, your risk is almost zero, but you're probably only gonna get you know, three, 4% a year if you're lucky in cash flow, just because you know, that, that building is going to cost so much more because you have such a low risk tenant in there. So that's, you know, you kind of choose the, you know, the, the, you know, I'd say category you want to play in when it comes to credit. And we play in that just, just a, you know, high level sub investment grade tenants and we do our own credit analysis. And really that's kind of how we're able to understand that value really well and still, you know, feel like we're making a good play. Gotcha. I think, um, you know, these credit tenants we're talking about, like Amazon, Home Depot, Walgreens, you know, these are, you know, single tenant properties that they that they occupy, uh, that they're tenanting. And when one of those properties goes for sale, I mean, it's there's not a lot of unknowns there. Right. It's um, it's almost closer to a commodity in that we have this sort of 
well-defined and understood credit rating of a tenant that's usually very strong in these cases of the companies I just listed, but um, it's really just a matter of, okay, what's the property? What market is it in? And, you know, even if it's not a great, you know, a growing market, well, you know, what it's a Walgreens, you know, and it's in a town that's got 70,000 people. And guess what? Walgreens isn't going to go pick up and leave anytime soon. They're a strong company. We all know them, right? So that's, it's really, it attracts a lot more buyers. And because of that and the strength that it command, uh, the strength of that tenant, it commands a much lower cap rate. That high price is, is not gonna give you the kind of yield that most investors are looking for. It's really a place that we see a lot of institutions and REITs going to find something that's safe, cash flowing, easy to manage. And you know, sometimes we, you know, we work with some investors who say, yeah, I own a property, a triple net property. It's a, you know, it's a Walgreens. Once again, use that example. But, you know, and they'll tell you all day long, they go, yeah, you know, it's safe, it's easy, but it doesn't yield very much. And that's there's a good reason for that. You know, it's uh, like that trade-off of risk and reward we see everywhere. So that's um, you know, why we we find so much more opportunity over here. Um, and like Neil said, it's there's a perceived risk here, but once you really open up the hood of that car and take a look around and you really find some strong companies that have been in business for a very long time and, and very profitable, they're just privately held, not well known, and it takes a lot of that work on the front end to get there. Pretty cool, man. So how are you guys finding them? Are you, is this only through a broker relationship or is there any opportunity for or off market, because I know, I mean, there's certain things that just, I mean, a broker is the only way, right? Is this one yeah. of those? I, I'd say the vast majority. So um, Dax Mitchell, the the managing partner, he's, he's, he's the founder of Mag Capital and he cut his teeth as a commercial real estate broker. Um, so he, he's really taken lead on, on acquisitions and most of the deal flow, almost everything's off market. And not really because, you know, we just have exclusive relationships. I mean, there is some of that, but a lot of it's just because the sale leaseback space is so kind of small and nuanced that it really is heavily relationship based. You know, you're not just putting a, a deal on the market looking for a buyer. You know, you're, you're looking for someone that can negotiate both pieces, that can close on a deal. And really the amount of people in our space that can do that you know, there's probably two dozen maximum. So, you know, they just, they all know each other and they call each other. They, they do a lot of buying and selling of sale leasebacks from each other. And, you know, it, it kind of works out, but I would say our standard deal flow, you know, we mentioned that manufacturing tenant. A lot of times what'll happen is, you know, the founder of that company, you know, maybe grew it for 40 years, you know, solid company, good financials. He's, he's looking, she's looking to retire. Right. So they sell the company to a private equity firm. That private equity firm buys the company and that company comes with the real estate quite often. And the private equity firm is interested in growing that company at, at a much faster clip than it was previously. They wanna pump it you know, full of capital in the right areas. They wanna add manufacturing lines, pay down debt, all this stuff. They can't get the returns they're looking for from owning real estate. So that's their motivation to sell. So they come to us and they go, or they go through a broker who comes to us and goes, Hey, you know, these guys just, just got sold to private equity group. The PE group is looking to sell lease back, free up the capital. Cause they want to, you know, do all those things I just mentioned. So it's, it's really, it's a win-win we come in, we're happy with the stability and, and, mm -hmm. you know, security that comes with that single tenant and that lease structure. They're happy because they're freeing up the proceeds and capital tied up in the real estate that they can reinvest in their their brand new portfolio company. And that that really that's the reason why these sale leasebacks happen, and you know allows them to grow the company in a way they like, and allows us to be you know happy landlords. Hey, hey, real quick, and I don't know, I'm just curious because I'm, I'm picturing what you're what you're saying, right? The uh, when somebody's selling you the property, are they vetting you? Uh, in regards to how you're gonna come back and lease that property, or how does that? Oh work? yeah, it's, <laughs> no, I, I mean because you are like you you don't want to be you know if you're a real jerk about you know how you sell yeah. the property. Guess what? <laughs> the, yeah. the tables are gonna turn right after you close on the sale. And uh, you know it's funny you know talking to our our you know people on our team. There's been a few times where you know Dax is like I can't believe these guys you know countered with this provision you know like they're nickel and diamond. Like, don't they know, you know, this is a long-term relationship. Yeah. You know, a lot of them maybe are, are a little short-sighted 
to really understand that piece that, Hey, this yeah. is, you know, you're going to need stuff down the road. And, you know, you certainly don't want to start off with an mm -hmm. onerous relationship with your new landlord. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's interesting. Cause then, yeah, you, you're selling it, but they're going to be your landlord. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you got to play nice. Yeah. Yeah, and, and one more question that I'm I'm intrigued, right? In regards to uh, syndication and, and getting your, your how how does the syndication and, and the exit strategy looks like? Because you mentioned uh, you plan on holding it for five years, right? So how does that work and the returns and all that stuff for for people that are well, listening to and? Well, I think you said longer, right? I mean, some of these are held for thirty years, but no, the leases the leases, leases are for thirty long. years. But you said you plan on holding it for five years, right? I'll jump in. Yeah, I'll clarify kind of the the what that time frame or timeline looks like. So, yeah, we'll get into contract with the property, and yeah, we we'll syndicate these deals. And as soon as we get into contract with it, you know, we we send out an invitation to our investor group, say, hey, here's what we've got, and you know, all the details about it. We share really everything. I mean, financials, the tenants. Um, usually more than most people ask for, but we really want to put everything out there. So um, people invest and we'll close on the property. And, you know, we're simultaneously buying and executing that long-term lease. Like we said, 15 to 20 years is pretty common there. So, you know, if you're every, you know, every deal can be different. You know, we don't run a fund. They're individual investments uh, that we make and, and that we offer to investors. So, you know, we may have something that's a little bit shorter term hold, but, um, you know, that kind of four to five year time is sort of a, a sweet spot that we like. Um, you know, if we can do a little earlier and it makes sense and great. Um, and we've had some that are five to seven years. That's not as common. But um, but yeah, four to five years is pretty common. And, you know, if we're selling at that time, there's you think about that, at least there's 10 to 15 years left on that lease. So that. It really, the property has a lot of strength and value due to a long, predictable cash flowing time period beyond, um, you know, the the sale of the property, right, or the acquisition for a buyer. So it still meets a lot of criteria for some, you know, some large REITs and institutions. But even some individual buyers may look at it and say, "Hey, this is fantastic. I want." a triple net leased property that's got, you know, at least 10 years, like I said, maybe 15 years left on the lease. So for them to go, this is great. It's really predictable. They didn't have to craft the entire lease. You know, we did all that work on the front end and it's a really great, you know, institutional grade lease. It's got features built into it, like quarterly uh, financial reporting from the tenants, you know, those annual rent bumps, um, and all these things that you would want in a good, strong lease. So there's a lot of value once we go to sell that because of that timeline left. You know, if you have a property with three years left on the lease and you want a long-term investment, well, I don't know, does this tenant pick up and leave? And you just don't know. So there's a lot more risk if um, if you don't have that long, uh, you know, runway in front of you for for a buyer who's looking to buy this property from us when we go to exit. And to piggyback on that, you know, we talked about kind of encapsulating that operational risk when it comes to the net lease portion and removing expenses out. Uh, another way we encapsulate operational risk is removing the need to go through a releasing event. So because we are, you know, the first owners on these new leases and because we always sell long before, you know, the lease runs out, we never have to go through that period where, hey, will the tenant renew? If they do, what concessions do they want? Do we need a reserve to do, you know, improvements for what they're going to want and play that whole negotiation game? And some people like, you know, kind of taking on that risk and, and potential reward from the uncertainty of if a tenant's going to renew. For us, we just kind of remove that from our entire business model. And again, it's just one more variable we can understand and remove from what we're looking at during our hold period. Great, sweet. Drew, you mentioned something that got me... Uh, kind of interested so it is long so you know why choose just a syndication model and not do a fund um would that change the returns do you get investors because i would imagine that you get investors that say hey can i keep my money in or, or can i what can i do at the end of the five-year period so have you thought of that just doing a fund or yeah yeah no it's funny we just had a conversation about this and and kind of shared had a, you know, sort of an open fireside chat with our investment group. And we talked a little bit about that because it's certainly something 
you know, it's crossed our minds. We've had lots of discussions about it. Um, we we look at funds and, and individual investments that we do, and and we you know coordinate and talk a lot with our investors who are really well experienced and kind of get their feedback too. And what you find um, is really funds are your. There's a lot of separation between an investor and a fund. Um, you really don't have any kind of control over what properties get sort of added to that portfolio after the fund is is fully funded. And there's a lot less communication and feedback from uh, a sponsor and that investor. It's sort of uh, as soon as the fund is raised, you know, there's a little bit of detachment and you can make phone calls and, and request it all, but it's just not as transparent. Um, it's similar to a REIT too, if you've ever invested in one. Um, they'll give you little updates. Here's a picture and a little bit about it, but oftentimes you're not getting the, uh, as much information as maybe you'd like. And also you're not able to make that decision, right? So we really like having that direct communication feedback from investors on each property. We have a great investment group. Um, you know, I'm, I've really appreciated this every day because, you know, when we have a property and we bring it to the table, we have investors who know what we're doing and understand uh, how we mitigate the risks and find these quality investments and they jump on board. So, you know, luckily it's, it's not um, something we can't do. You know, it's, uh, it's tough if you, if you can't raise, you know, however many millions of dollars in, in a matter of weeks, then, you know, it may be a tough type of plan for you. But um, if you can, like we can, then we're able to be a little bit more nimble and kind of look at each property individually. Um, I mean, we could talk a lot about this question because it's a great one, right? Funds versus individual investments. But yeah, yeah. I'll throw it to Neil, see if he has anything to add to that. I'd say the only last piece, you know, people sometimes go to a fund and go, Hey, I, I like a fund cause I get better diversity. And we, we kind of mitigate that in that we have a, a fairly regular deal flow, you know, on, on the average year we do, you know, between about eight and 12 projects. So roughly every four to six weeks, we have a new one, and usually in a very similar, you know, risk return structure and profile. So we, we encourage folks, hey, there is a, a little bit of concentrated risk with the single tenant model and that, you know, it's kind of binary. They're either in or they're not. And to be fair, we've, we've never lost a tenant, never had, you know, a tenant default on a lease. Um, you know, we've been really fortunate on how we've how we've chosen them. But, you know, there is a little more concentrated risk there. So we usually encourage our folks if they have the capital to spread it out across, you know, three, four, however many deals in a year. And that allows them to kind of have some built in diversity. And frankly, I like the direct investment model because your funds are used more efficiently. You know, in a fund, you kind of, you know, you're forced to, to buy stuff. Otherwise, you have investor capital just sitting there. Yeah. You know, and, and sometimes, you know, maybe it's the right decision. Maybe it's, you know, suboptimal, but you need to put those funds to work. Whereas, you know, in a direct investment model, like Drew said, if, if you're able to raise the capital you need on time, I mean, it is the most efficient use of your investor's money possible. So, you know, you're able to raise it, put it to work immediately and return it when you're done. I got to jump back in because that's a great point to make. Um, if you have a fund, yeah, you have to put that capital to work. And is every investment going to stand on its own? Um, and maybe sure. not, right? You may have one that's okay, but if you presented it on its own to investors, would they jump in? So yeah, uh, yeah I, I really feel like we and our investors kind of keep each other sharp. Um, we're forced to look at each individual investment and say, look, is this, is this something that makes sense on all different levels? You know, can with, can this stand on its own and withstand any kind of scrutiny? Um, Cause we scrutinize it a lot and our investors certainly do too. We need to have answers for all this. How, how are we mitigating any kind of risks that could be foreseeable there? So if I have a fund, I may have a couple winners, but I may be playing a little bit looser at a certain point and getting a couple that are maybe not the best properties and maybe <laughs> not getting anyone really excited. But yeah. at the end of the day, there's no control from the investors. You sort of, it fits within maybe your guidelines that you gave out originally, but maybe it's not really even very high yielding. You just needed to make some acquisitions. So I think yeah. investors um, really are, really a fund may be more beneficial to a sponsor, but I think it keeps us sharper to be individual. Yeah. So the bottom I, line um, is, is, is quality and not quantity. I, I find if you look under the hood on most funds, you'll find one or two well-polished turds that got thrown in the mix. <laughs> <laughs> Always, man. Yeah, no, that's Very true. shiny but, golden turd. <laughs> but I like what you said about, you know, you being able to talk to your investor base. Is that, that's key, right? 
right? yeah. especially as you're building your, your investor base. You know, I, I like that that about you guys. German, what else you got? No, man, I'm, I'm fascinated by the subject. Uh, and, and, and one part is because we had a deal recently that we were uh, uh, trying, to, trying to acquire and it was actually a multifamily um, building. I think, it, I, if I remember well, it was net, 50. Yeah, it was, a, uh, yeah it, it was a net lease. We've never seen it. I've never seen any multifamily where an entity would lease all the apartments and we basically wouldn't worry about anything. Huh, um, yeah, so, so, so that's why I, I love the subject. I just never heard it before on, on yeah. uh, a buyback, which is really awesome. Yeah, the, the sale leaseback model. The sale leaseback, yeah. Kind of that that one one more level into you know just yeah. an option to acquire. Yeah, it. So it's, yeah, I, I love to sell. And it seems like a very small niche market. So you know, I think you guys mentioned it, but all of you guys operating in that space know each other and just keep selling back to each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> make your money. I love it. Yeah, we're you know we're we're fortunate. I think the you know the transactional structure of a sale leaseback is becoming more well-known. So more, more businesses are entertaining that, you know, and more private equity groups are utilizing that, which is nice because it's kind of opening up additional deal flow opportunities. And, you know, we hope it, it continues at the rate it is. Great. That's awesome. All right, guys. Well, if you can let the audience know where they can find you, uh, what kind of, if you have any deal going on, uh, go ahead and advertise yourself. Let them know where they can reach you. Yeah, absolutely. I'll start. So Neil Walgren, uh, you can get me Neil, N-E-I-L at magcp.com, 925-487-3978. And uh, myself or Drew, you want to introduce your side? Yeah, I'm surprised you're putting your phone number out there. You're going to get uh, all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's well, We can redact that, right? <laughs> Clean that up and post. Um, yeah, Drew Walgren. Um, you can email me directly, drew at magcp.com. And uh, you can even go to our website and um, and register over there at our website, magcp.com. And I think there's a portion that says where you found us and you can, you know, reference this podcast. It'd be great. Just so we kind of know how you found us. But um, we have, like Neil said, a pretty consistent deal flow. So reach out. Um, you know, we, we do kind of want to have a initial call to sort of get to know each other and establish that connection uh, before we sort of include them in future offerings. But um, it's a nice pipeline of deals. And if people are interested, they should reach out so they can take a look. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, it's been an honor having you guys on. And thanks yeah, so much for having us, guys. Enjoyed yeah, it. Fun. All right, brother power, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>